Hello, I'm composer Joshua Shank, and welcome to Have You Heard This? The podcast where me and my colleague John Fielder talk about classical music and not being a dick about it. Hey, John. Welcome to episode four, my friend. Hello. Yeah. How you doing? Uh, you know, it's been an okay, actually. Uh, it's been a pretty good summer. I've been mostly trying to get caught up on projects, uh, or I guess catching up on a lot of projects that have fallen behind. But, um, you know, that's a good thing, I think. Yeah. 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 I have some projects that I need to get to work on. That's for sure. I have two things that I got to do. So, uh, yeah, well, now I have a, a mountain of uh, anxiety about how much work I have to do as a composer here in the next couple of months. But yeah, you know, last summer before things really started shutting down, I had a number of casual projects that I was working on. Then as, you know, places started shutting down, concerts started getting canceled. I thought, you know, well, you know, these are all casual projects and they don't have any planned performance dates right now, so they can all go on the back burner. And, you know, now things are starting to open back up and Things are getting scheduled and, uh, you know, I'm like, oh shit, I should probably make good on those pieces. I promised, you know, a couple years ago. <laughs> yep. No kidding. We just got back from a vacation in the Catskills with some friends, which sounds fancier than it was. That um, sounds very fancy. I know. I, well, <laughs> it's one of those things where we all had to put in to get an Airbnb that we like could afford. So, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't anything too fancy, but it was just, uh, really nice and restful. Um, catching up with people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nice to just feel like a sense of normalcy, you know? Oh, something like that. Do you want to get into some tunes? You know I do. That's the only reason we're here. That is right. <laughs> All right, well, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back uh, with some Adolphus Hailstork. Here we go. Okay, and we're back. So uh, the piece that I brought this week is one, uh, one of my favorite, I, I hesitate to call it like an arrangement, but there's this tradition of, you know, taking folk tunes and arranging them for choirs. Uh, and this is, I, I think, one of my very favorite versions of whatever that process is. It's sort of more than an arrangement um, because there's some really, really cool things happening. And it's a piece called Crucifixion. Uh, by Adolphus Hailstork, who's an uh, American composer, born in 1941. He was born in Rochester, New York. Uh, he grew up, grows up in Albany. As a kid, he studies vi violin, piano, organ, and voice. I just imagine him as a kid must have been just like really precocious to have learned all those. Yeah, so he studied violin, piano, organ, and voice. And then on top of that, uh, writes music as well. He gets his bachelor's. He has, I, this is a little kind of a weird thing that, that in my research, he has two bachelor's degrees in music. One of them is from Howard University, that HBCU that's in uh, Washington, D.C. And another one is from the Manhattan School of Music, where he studies with David Diamond, American composer, uh, and Vittorio Giannini. Then he stays on at Manhattan to get his master's in 66 and then gets a PhD from Michigan State in 71. So East Coast, goes to Michigan, all that stuff. And then he heads back to the East, uh, East Coast 
um, and teaches at a couple different places in Virginia. He's either currently still on the faculty at Old Dominion University, which is an HBCU in Norfolk, uh, Virginia, or he's like an emeritus there. He has this incredible career. He's gotten these commissions from like pretty much every major orchestra in the United States. He's written three operas. All three of his symphonies have been recorded really well. And his work often focuses on um, historical events in the United States. A lot of times um, on the black experience, he has this uh, opera called Rise for Freedom, which is about the Underground Railroad. He has another uh, a wind ensemble piece called American Guernica, which is about uh, 1963 firebombing of an Alabama church that killed three black girls. He has a work about JFK uh, called I Speak of Peace. And John, if I do you know who Crispus Attucks is? You ever heard of that guy? Uh, no, not ringing any bells. He was the first guy killed in the Boston Massacre. Like he's the first casualty of the Revolutionary War. We live here in Boston now, and like we walked past Boston Common, and there's the Crispus Attucks Memorial. And I don't know why, but his name always stuck with me. Like I, I knew who Crispus Attucks was, but I was like, Robert, look over there, it's the Crispus Attucks Memorial. And he was like, Who's that? <laughs> so uh, anyway, and I, I bring that up because Dr. Hale Stark has a, a choral orchestral work called Crispus Attucks American Patriot. Um, he writes a piece called Set Me on a Rock about Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, and he's currently writing his fourth symphony called A Knee on the Neck which of course is a reference to uh, the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in, in my hometown of Minneapolis. He, he's got uh, some, and I've, I, you know, we're going to go through this kind of one of these pieces, uh, but I, I dug pretty deep in, 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 into some of his works and there's really, really cool stuff. The Virginia Symphony Orchestra did a full album of his orchestral music conducted by the great Joanne Folletta, of course. There's three spirituals for orchestra. Uh, one of them includes, okay, so I'll say this, like think, thinks uh, like, like, I think he's really steeped in probably Copeland a little bit because do you know, the tune Kumbaya. Uh, if you were talking about the folk melody, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It comes from uh, an African-American uh, community of slaves in South Carolina, I think, called the Gullah Geechee. And it means, it's Kumbaya. It just basically, basically means come by here. Someone's crying, Lord, come by here. And the Gullah Geechee have the, this really distinctive accent. And so it, Kumbaya. Uh, is what it ends up sounding like. So it's in his piece called Three Spirituals for Orchestra, which is, if you don't know it, it's fantastic. It feels to me like, yeah, he's definitely studied Copeland. And that one in particular, so most of Hale Stork's listens on Spotify are like under 10,000 listens. The, his his arrangement of Kumbaya has 2.2 million listens. So it's, Damn, it's and, and that's for good hit. reason. Yeah, for good reason. It's really, really beautiful. He has some chamber stuff. There's a gorgeous album by the Ambrosia Quartet, which includes... Um, his own adagio for strings. That's <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it's gorgeous. It's very Vivaldi esque, and it's kind of a it's a adagio for strings treatment of "We Shall Overcome," which that uh, that wonderful song. And it immediately went on my string quartet playlist. I was like, "This is so good." And then if you want to get really crazy, uh, his he has this uh, chamber uh, work called Arabesques, and the second movement uses these crazy rhythmic patterns of like five and ten. Uh, common to Arabic music. And it's scored for uh, uh, one flute and one percussionist. And he gets some crazy sounds out of this thing, out of this stuff. So definitely. Yeah. I mean, my takeaway from all of this is definitely that I need to listen to more Adolphus Hailstork. Couldn't hurt. <laughs> nope. I, you know, I hadn't, I only knew uh, this one and from the album that, that, that we um, excerpted from uh, by the wonderfully performed by the uh, BYU singers. And I'm so glad I got a chance to dig in a little bit more. He's a really incredible composer. It's still writing, too. I mean, he's born in 1941, so that makes him, you know, he's 80 years old this year. 
and he's still he's writing his fourth symphony. Uh, so uh, the piece that we're going to excerpt is, is called Crucifixion, and it's from kind of a, a suite of tunes that all reference folk songs. Um, and uh, the source material uh, is this uh, spiritual um, song, uh, He Never Said a Mumbling Word. And I, I kind of did some research on it. Do you know the John and Alan Lomax recordings? No. Yeah. So they're two v- a very famous American musicologists who like, just like Bartok did, oh, you know. Right. Yeah. They they traveled the United States and they collected folk tunes, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh and uh they're 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 fantastic. Uh but they went out and collected it in the, the 30s or and 40s. The in in the anthology where they write about this stuff, they you know, did some crazy fun research as musicologists do. Um they mentioned that the song was known throughout Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, and it was titled Never Said a Mumbling Word. Um, it's about in the Christianity, the crucifixion of Jesus, and they, they crucified him on a tree, and he never said a mumbling word. I think, uh, Mark, if I'm wrong here, but I think the, the Lomax recordings are available on Spotify. I'll have to look that up. In any case, uh, Hale Stork takes that tune and he makes this out of it. My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my loved this piece forever and ever and ever. This album I love uh, so much. I've listened to it for God, it's 20 years now, and I've never gotten the score for this piece until until now. Uh, so you uh, and I, this comp- podcast was the impetus for me to actually uh, get some shekels to Dr. Hale Stork <laughs> from my pocket. Uh, man, I really dug this piece. Um, I've, I've liked most of what we've listened to and what you've introduced to me, but this one really stuck out. And I got to say, I didn't know what a banger in the choral world sounded like before, <laughs> but I think I know now. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like high energy right out of the gate. It just smacks you right in the face from the first measure. And, you know, those opening bars are exciting on their own, but then like right after that, it just really stays, you know, high energy throughout and it never really kind of settles down. There's that, you know, middle section, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but I don't really want to like steamroll this. You know, you've lived with this piece a lot longer than I have. So, you know, I'm more interested to hear what you have to say about it, really. Very cool. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't let up. That's one of the things I 
I like about it. And it doesn't let up. It gets quiet. Right. But it's, there's still like some sort of menace to it. That Yeah. It's like a quiet energy. Like it drops in dynamic, but it doesn't really drop in intensity. I think that's what I, I found really remarkable about that middle section. And where that section begins, you've got written right there very slowly and solemnly. Quarter note equals 44. Most of the dynamics are piano and mezzo piano, but there's still a really strong intensity to it. And I think it has to do with the way the voices are layered. You know, you've got the the lowest voices sustaining these notes and creating this sound bed, but then all of the other voices are reintroducing melodies and motives that had been heard earlier in the piece, maybe isolated when they were originally presented, but now they're layered over each other. They create sort of this tapestry and framework. And I think that's really where a lot of that intensity comes from is, you know, you're hearing slow music insofar that it's a slow uh, tempo, but you're not really hearing slow music in the traditional sense because there's actually so much going on for your ear to to tune into and listen to. I just, I found that really, uh, you know, a really striking section in this piece. It's a really cool exercise in counterpoint. I, I, that's one of the things I like about this. And you don't see that, like counterpoint is not, I mean, I hate to even use this word. It's not super trendy, you know, these days. Vertical, crunchy harmonies are kind of what a cluster chords is often how it's what's talked about. This uses some counterpoint. So you got to that the, the very slow, slowly and solemnly section, which is, you know, again, quarter equals 44. All the recordings that I looked into with this piece, they never take it that slow. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you about that. It took until the second listen, but it hit me and I was like, that is not... 44, you know, <laughs> that would be just like a glacial tempo. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I kind of, don't, if, if this were my piece, I wouldn't have a problem with that. My tempi tend to be way, I marked way too slow all the time. I always just tell the choir, like, make it what works for you. It doesn't have to be you know, exactly what I put down on the page, which, uh, you know, that's, that's gotten away from me before <laughs> where the resulting performance, I just kind of go, Ooh, I kind of wish I hadn't said that, but, um, but live and learn, you know. Yeah, and shortly after that middle section, or I guess transitioning out of it, it goes into a much faster section where the quarter note at 120. And when I went back through and looked at the score and, and sort of processed all that, I thought, man, I'm really glad they didn't take that middle section at 44. I just, I feel like that jump in, in tempo would be so jarring, you know? Yeah, and there's that, that a cello rondo at the top of the page. Yeah, that would well, make it not, less jarring. I, I wonder, how, how do you feel about how this piece is, is marked? Well, I guess my first takeaway in looking at the score and following along and listening was thinking about how I would feel maybe conducting this piece and how it actually looks like it would be a fun piece to conduct. Um, my background in conducting is pretty limited. I've not really done a whole lot. I haven't really studied it much. Um, it was a required class in undergrad, and the one I took happened to be with uh, Dr. Peter Jargisian, who was one of the choral conductors. So really all of my experience in conducting is from the viewpoint of a uh, choral conductor. I guess that aspect of the notation was really sort of what I was following and tracking going through listening to this. The only reason I ask, I guess, is it's very mannered, which is not a bad thing. It seems to be marked like an orchestral composer would mark a score, in, in my experience. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever got, and I can't remember who told it to me, was like, you don't want to overmark a, a choral piece so much so that it becomes a caricature of, of itself and that there's no anima behind it, you know? And this, when I see so, so many of these, you know, crescendi and decrescendi and sforzandi and things like that, I feel like 
maybe we could we could do a little bit less. And in all the performances that I listen to on Spotify, they don't necessarily do all of these markings that he puts in the score. And they also come across beautifully, though, you know? You know, that's a good point and not one I had considered. Maybe one of the reasons I was really drawn to this and thought about it from a conducting standpoint is because it does, you know, look appealing or similar to, you know, what we would see in the instrumental world. And in addition to that, you know, my own music is not that far removed from new complexity. So, you know, overly notating scores and putting a lot of detail, that's, <laughs> you know, that's what I do. You know, really, this piece is severely under-notated, Whoa. if you ask me. But now that I take a look at the score, you know, I'm looking at a page now, and you're definitely right. There is a lot of information for these performers to take in. Uh, the page that I'm looking at now, you know, there's a different articulation on every single note in this bar. You know, you've got a staccato, a tenuto, you've got accents with and without staccatos and tenutos, you've got marcados. Right here is an accent with a staccato followed by just a tenuto, both happening under a slur. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. This is, this is something you would probably typically see more in instrumental music, uh, at least with my limited exposure to choral music. But now it makes me wonder, you know, you said Hailstork writes a combination of choral music and instrumental music. Uh, is there one that he favors or writes, you know, over the other? Or is it sort of an even split? I think a, a com combination of both. I mean, he's got, he's working on his fourth symphony. So the guy writes for instruments quite a bit. Uh, so if you go to like page 12, and like, I, what did I write about? Oh yeah, measure 75, I wrote, I wrote the staccatos. Uh, he goes, well, my lord, not a Word, my lord, not a word. I always wonder how, how how do you perform that? When I see a tenuto and a staccato, I immediately I think that's a string notation. Like that's that's a string thing. I don't know that voices can do that. And so finding the what the interpretation is going to be, what does that mean for the choir that's you know performing it? You know, actually, a tenuto with a staccato is my favorite articulation. <laughs> I mean. It just is, you know? It's a really nerdy thing to laugh about. Yeah like. yeah. like having a favorite font. I do like staccato plus tenuto. You know, I've always been interested to hear how performers interpret that particular articulation because it's kind of ambiguous, right? Uh, you know, it's short and it's separated, but there's also a little weight to it. You know, it's like it's full bodied. But your point about string articulations, is I think that's a really good point. And it's actually got me thinking about the level of detail on the rest of this and in the context of a choir. So I guess in the context of an instrumental ensemble that, you know, like especially chamber music at that level of nuance and detail, you know, that comes through. But I guess that could be lost in the context of a full choir. But I do wonder what the psychological influence um, that has on performers, you know, because the way something's notated does impact how we, you know, interpret passages and analyze and prepare and work up a piece, you know. I guess I just wonder how a group of singers might all interpret that together, you know. Well, uh, let's hear how the BYU singers deal with that uh, tenuto uh, staccato. Here's how they do it. Here's the, here's the wonderful BYU singers.
as you can tell, one of the other things that I wrote down, I wrote, these lines are so singable. Yeah. They are, they just fly out of the voice so beautifully. You can hear that in the performance. Uh, I, I just love it so much. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, speaking of conducting, do you, it's marked, so the opening tempo is marked quarter note equals 88, right? I feel this in two. I don't know about you. So this, my Lord, my Lord. I don't hear my one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. I hear my one, two, one, two. It glides a little bit more if you feel it in two. And I always, I always wonder about that um, because in, in the United States, we tend to like the quarter note is everything, you know? We do but love the quarter note. We do love the quarter note. And I, I feel like maybe we'd throw this in uh, in cut time. And uh, that's how I would conduct it, at least. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Cut time does seem to make the most sense, just you know at where the, the stressed beats are and the general tempo. And yeah, I think if you were to cover up that 4-4 four, four at the beginning, it would definitely you know feel to me from a performance standpoint, at least, I would probably feel it in cut time. So I don't see why a conductor wouldn't you know take the same approach. Yeah, and it, you and I could sort of dissect it um, musically a whole bunch. But I, the, the, you know, it's, it's a choral piece. So there's text. And I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a tough text, you know, because it's about um, the murder, the torture and murder of a human being of, of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I just kind of wrote this thing down. So it's, they tied him to a tree and he never said a mumbling word. And they, they, they did all these things, you know, to, to the, the body of Jesus. And but he never said a mumbling word. And I wrote down why, why the rush to sing about the virtues of dying in silence. And then how that is, you know, steeped in the history of um, the experience of enslaved people in the United States to not cry out um, when um, they were being tortured. Uh, I, I think I would find it really hard to to arrange this piece or even I think I would feel it was sort of impossible to give myself permission to speak to this experience, which, you know, I, I, that's just sort of my own thought about what I can say in terms of, of this cultural artifact that we have of this, of this spirituals by enslaved people, because someone wrote it, you know, we, we sort of think of like things like I have arranged a spiritual, but it's go tell it on the mountain. It's a lot happier. Right. But, but, you know, someone had to sing it first and that person was likely an enslaved person. There's a, there's, you know, this, almost gargantuan amount of poison in our history that we have to talk about um, as well we should and Dr. Hillstork is doing that good work of talking about it um, from his perspective and that, that's another reason I think I, I love this song so much because it tries to you know say something and that doesn't always happen there's sometimes there's a lot of navel gazing that can take place in our art uh, and this this piece could do that if it wants, but um, there's uh, something more on the surface that sort of cuts a little bit uh, quicker. Yeah, totally agree there. Uh, it's definitely not a text that I ever think that I would attempt to set. You know, not that I even you know could set something like this. Uh, I uh, yeah, and 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 <laughs> how could you after after this? I mean, like, for this real. is so good. I wrote that that middle section reminds me of like Tomas Louis de Victoria. The final section on the last page is like the adagio for strings at hyperspeed. And, so, and if, if for any of the listeners out there, there's some really fine performances on Spotify by uh, Vocal Essence uh, out of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Cincinnati Cathedral Choristers, uh, Mansfield University, uh, my uh, alma mater, uh, the Luther College Nordic Choir, 
also has a performance of it. Uh, and then of course the one that we're using with the BYU singers um, who just perform it so beautifully. Uh, in or, before, we, before we launch into the discussion of, of your piece, I think we should transition uh, by using uh, the final passage uh, from their incredible performance. So let's go ahead and, and jump into that and then we'll be back uh, with a discussion of a piece by... Lisa Lim. By Lisa Lim, yeah, cool. All right, we'll be right back. back to talk about Ochred String by composer Lisa Lim. So Lisa Lim has been a really big inspiration for me over the last decade or so. Uh, She's a really prolific composer, has written for all sorts of combinations of instruments, large forces and small multimedia work. She's really done about everything. Uh, If you haven't heard of her already, I really strongly recommend giving her music a listen and uh, just reading up about all of the stuff that she's done. So she was born in Australia, but she lived in a number of places growing up, specifically in the uh, Southeast Pacific. And she's talked in interviews a lot about how those experiences growing up have helped shape her throughout her life. But one element of living in Australia that she's written about um, to some degree is the influence of Aboriginal culture in her music. Uh, And that's actually going to be important to our discussion today. But one other thing that is uh, that she's most often associated with New Complexity, who are composers who I guess are famous or infamous, depending on the circle. Josh is already smiling and giving me a thumbs up from the other side. (laughs) No, I was using a different finger. I mean, still a single digit. (laughs) Right, so new complexity. But I've always thought of her music as in a different category within that group. Not in another echelon or anything like that, just different. So... Let me try to explain what I mean. So if you're not aware of what I mean by new complexity, it's a loosely defined collection of uh, techniques and approaches to composition that are really primarily unified only by uh, notational practice that's very dense, very detailed, very heavily notated. But even between composers, there's not really a lot of consistency. Uh, So I won't go into it in much more detail than that. If you're interested, you can check out Brian Fernihow, Richard Barrett, Chaya Chernovin, Morlisa Lim, or Franklin Cox. I'll throw some links into the podcast website uh, on the page for this episode as well. To get to it then, notation is a big deal with new complexity, but I don't think it's necessarily essential to ever see the score to appreciate new complexity compositions Uh, let alone to understand um, what's in all the detail. But I think that especially applies to Lisa Lim, at least for me. I think the experience of it um, and really the the sound itself is is really what's central to her music. And I I feel that way based on uh, what I've read about her uh, and interviews I've seen with her. There's one in particular, a a really great video interview where she's in this garden, uh, like a community garden. And she's talking a lot about the noise around her and how influential noise just in general is on her conception of music and layering sound, uh, but also how she likes to start with noise and then sculpt that. 
So I've always found I found that interesting because that's actually how I describe my approach uh, to people and how I write music, specifically my electronic music. I don't think of it so much like uh, I'm a painter combining colors and shapes, but more like I'm a sculptor starting with some kind of pre-existing material and then morphing it into something unrecognizable from the original, but enhanced in some way. So sort of like starting with something raw and unrefined, but creating something really beautiful out of it, or maybe creating something grotesque, but that's okay too. And so she has a really, almost in this interview, a Cajun way of talking about noise and its importance to her. Um, So even though her music doesn't really sound anything like Cage, it's still very clear that that way of thinking is important. So she refers to all the sounds around her. You know, she's talking about the wind and the traffic, the birds, the insects making sounds around her, and all of these little interruptions and interjections, and how all of that combines to make this cohesive whole. Uh, So they all have their own unique role in the total framework of everything. They all have their own sort of, uh, you know, melodic components or rhythmic components or whatever it might be. And they're unique, but they also play a role in what's going on in the total framework. Even when it's a cacophony, there's a kind of rhetoric or logic to it, even if it's not on the surface. I think for this piece, though, it very much is on the surface. Um, Josh, do you want to chime in? I'm just like rambling at this point. I, I looked. I found a um, an interview with her for for a French magazine called uh, Papier Musique, and she said the following about her piece. Uh, she said, "Quote: There is this constantly transforming surface. It's not at all smooth. It's made up of all kinds of undulations and ripples, and these kind of nodules in which things are flowing." Then on top of that are these kind of violent events that rupture, that cut through, that show another world that is somehow beneath the surface of this undulating material. On my second listen, you know, I was trying to, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. You, you were talking about her idea of noise. And she says in the same um, interview that musicians sometimes joke with her that she's asking them to employ the quote technique of a beginner which Hmm. i thought that was a really interesting way to put yeah well i'd be lying if i said i hadn't been told the same at some point (laughs) there were a couple things that that my first two notes as soon as i hit play i was five seconds in and i just was like god damn it john Mm. (laughs) (laughs) listen to this piece now Uh. because it is not it is not my thing. It's nope. uh and it's oh not an easy listen either. No. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of makes me think about like, you know, the pieces we brought in, uh, you know, you've brought in, you know, these choral works which are all, you know, great uh in their own individual ways, but all very digestible and I feel like as we've gone, I've just brought in progressively more difficult things for you to listen to. You know, we started out with my piece, Think, which, you know, was was what it was. Um, And then we got into Lee Hyla, which, you know, some thorny chamber music. Then Zappa, which really cranked it up a notch in terms of the angular dissonant kerplunkity. And now here we are with Lisa Lim. And I knew bringing this in, I love this piece so much, but I knew bringing it in was going to be probably one of the more polarizing pieces to bring in this early in the podcast series, but I brought it in for you, Josh. This one's for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I know what I signed up for.
I thought, I bet John likes this because of the oboe licks in it. And then I read a little bit more about her and I was like, oh, wait, or because she was a student of Brian Fernie <laughs> I mean, that's not not part of it. I mean, Fernie was the gateway drug, you know, if we if we want to get into it that way. But yeah, no, I, I love this piece for a lot of reasons. But before I get into anything else, you know, I think it's important to read this uh, little blurb. If you look this piece up on her website, it takes you uh, to a link with a description of the piece um, and uh, her program note. So I kind of just want to read this program note down because uh, I don't want to you know, say anything wrong or screw anything up. So I'm just going to read down this. So two substances which are centrally important in traditional Australian Aboriginal cultural economies are ochre, a colored earth mixture with water used for painting, and string made from human hair, which is then rubbed with ochre and animal fat. These elemental substances coming from the earth and the body are widely used in the production of ritual items accompanying key ceremonies, such as for birth, initiation into different life stages, marriage, funerals, healing, increase of fertility, of natural resources, love magic, and sorcery. In several Aboriginal cultures, an important aesthetic component lies in the quality of the shimmer created when the skin and hair is rubbed with oils and ochre. The glowing light flickering effect is associated with transformation of matter and connections to spiritual states. And so it's the word shimmer here that really sticks out to me as being, you know, part of a descriptor that's really important, um, not just sort of visually to imagine, you know, the, the ochred string that she's talking about and its use here, but really also orally um, the kinds of the colors that you hear. So, you know, that's something that I think is really important a takeaway of what this piece is about. Well, and on her website, she tells this whole story about going to a funeral and things like that. And then and in the end kind of does a U-turn. This is like the piece isn't about that. But I was just really inspired by this thing. And that's fine. Like, it's OK to love a piece, man. Yeah. Enjoy the piece. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've done that before. Like, I've started pieces with a really clear idea of what I wanted to do or like what it was about. And then by the end of it, I've just fully gone off the rails. I'm doing something else entirely. Um, and you know, by that point, it, the, whatever was originally, you know, the inspiration might not even be relevant, but I mean, it was at least the impetus for the piece, right? You know, you've got that, but Josh, you mentioned before about like these outbursts and ideas that kind of develop and reveal themselves over time. And I think that's really, for me, what's at the heart of this piece. Um, so like the imagery is really strong and I think that the music serves that, you know, based on what you read in the program note. But what I really hear when I listen to this is exactly what you're talking about. These uh, motives, you know, the melodies, gestural shapes, um, approaches to to layering and, you know, stretching and shrinking ideas and harmonies. And yeah, it's grueling. But I think a piece like this really demands multiple listens. Like, uh, How many times did you go through it? I did one without the score. And then I st- and then I did one with the score, which I ended up kind of abandoning halfway through it because it didn't it didn't like elucidate anything for me yeah uh, i totally get because it was like, i was like well i mean i can tell how it's it's yeah this is how it's notated but it's more important how it sounds to me at least so yeah totally i agree and i wanted to cycle back to this actually i've always found lisa Lim to be a really interesting figure in the new complexity school and i'm doing air quotes around school here um but it's because the role of notation for me was always kind of secondary for her you know um, I was always more intrigued by the sound world that she creates uh, more than, you know, how and how she writes for instruments more than uh, how she writes on the page. 
you know, sometimes the sounds are so divorced from what, you know, we typically associate with, you know, say an oboe or a violin that listening to it and sort of just taking that in has always been more um, exciting for me. But if you take composers like Brian Farnihow or Kaya Chernovin or Frank Cox or James Erber, and I'll even throw myself in here for this, I think the notation is very important for a lot of composers in new complexity for varying reasons, you know. But I imagine all of those composers would also still tell you that the music ultimately and the sound is, is really their primary concern and that actually seeing the notation is, is a bit superficial. Uh, but for me, that distinction has just always been more um, apparent with Lim's music. You know, there's an immediacy to it. And I've always been able to just get lost in her music. You know, I love to look at her scores and I do take a lot away from them in terms of, say, like, uh, you know, composition or craft. But I don't necessarily find that they've ever given me a more privileged experience when listening or, sure. you know, they, they don't really give me more just from following along with the score. And I think for that reason, um, of all my new complexity heroes, uh, she's always held a special place. You know, this wasn't my favorite piece in the whole world, but that's not that's not the end of the world. Uh, there were some moments in here that were so cool, though. Um, there was this moment right around, I think, four minutes, 45, where the violin completely blended into... Sorry, it wasn't a violin, it's a viola. That's another thing that when I went back and looked at the score, I was like, there's no violin. That was a screaming high viola. Yeah, I don't even know if we've said the instrumentation yet, um, but I really love the combination of instruments in this piece. It's scored for oboe, viola, cello, and double bass. It was pretty. It was pretty boss. Yeah, I love that combination personally. Um, it's just such a cool collection that offers so many options for different, you know, like timbres and different colors, ranging from anything from like really sweet to about as crunchy as you want to get. Uh, when I first heard about when I first heard about combining strings with solo oboes in a piece by Brian Fernihal called Algebra, um, it was also for, uh, this one was for string quartet and oboe, um, so not string trio. Um, so I'm an oboist, or at least I was at the time. I love string quartets, so I figured I'd give it a listen, and uh, I would at least like it for the novelty, if nothing else. But I was really drawn into the sound world in Algebra, and then later discovered Ochre String and was equally sort of impressed with it and drawn in. I just, I love how the oboe has such a unique timbre that allows it to blend in with the strings or create this really stark contrast at any given time. And you can easily sort of morph in and out of that. Um, you can write for it equally well as a unified body of sound or, you know, divided by register in the strings or by tone quality of the oboe. So 
Um, and since hearing algebra and ochred string, I've also come across a few other pieces with this instrumentation. Well, one that comes to mind is actually um, a piece called From the Verge of Dreams by our former UT Austin colleague, James Parker. Uh, so if you like that instrumentation, um, check out uh, that piece as well. You might really enjoy it. So there's, there's, there's this moment when, when, the, when the violin blends into the oboe line. And then later on, there's this really, really badass oboe lick right around nine minutes and 31 seconds. It sounds like this. And then a little bit like nine seconds later, there's this, there's a, there's this brief glimpse of harmony. These things that she's talking about kind of peeking through the undulating things. There's this really brief glimpse of a harmony that like my ear kind of grabbed onto uh, at around 940. And it sounds like this. And anyway, there, you know, I, let's, you know what, let's, let's stop for a second. Let's play a kind of a bit of a longer uh, excerpt of this just for the listener to kind of get what we're talking about. So I have, a, I have a question, and, and I, I want to say, like, at risk of being disrespectful, and I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, mm -hmm. I, you know, I cannot write this music. Tread carefully. Because <laughs> I know you love it. Uh, and the audience loved it, too. She, she noted on her website that the concert in Munich uh, that this was premiered at, that had to be repeated twice because the size of the crowd overflowed. Um, yeah, I mean, Lisa Lim is, she's, she's kind of a big deal. Uh, she used to teach at Huddersfield. I mean, she gets performed all over the place, you know, um, in Europe a lot. And I, I could definitely see the Europeans loving music like this. Oh, yeah, it sounds like totally. But I mean, she's also been commissioned by the Los Angeles Phil. Yeah, she's prominent for sure. Uh, so here's, here's my question to you as a lover of this piece. Is it too long? Yeah, definitely. Almost without hesitation. Well, Actually, let me walk that back. A little hesitation. It's too long for me personally and for my attention span. Um, others might disagree, but, you know, I do enjoy a long-form work. I think it's really incredible to find a piece uh, that's really well-crafted and expands uh, gradually and it does a lot of exploration over a long period of time with meaningful sonic relationships and a good musical narrative. I love that. This piece, though, does go on a little longer than I would prefer, but not by much. And I guess the way that it finishes out also plays into that. So we talked about that section around nine minutes and 30 seconds. And I would say from there to the end is where my mind starts to wander, with the exception of the last minute or so where you get these uh, little outbursts of activity, followed by these really punctuated, very pregnant um, pauses and moments of silence. That always brings me back in because of the contrast of activity and silence that's so much more pronounced in this section, more so than the rest of the piece. Um, that's all a very long-winded way of me saying, yes, yes, it is. Whenever I see pieces like this, I always wonder if um, the commission was for a 12 and a half minute piece <laughs> and then you have to you have to get to it. And this, to me, felt that 
like that. Uh, not to say that it wasn't an absolutely brilliant piece of, I mean, it, it, you would be shooting yourself in both of your feet if you said that it wasn't, wasn't brilliantly scored. I mean, it's, and I, I have the, just the most utmost admiration for uh, what, what uh, she was able to do. Um, Cause it's, it, it, th- there are some moments that I was like, that's so cool, you know? I totally agree. Um, you're really only doing yourself a disservice by not checking out her music. Um, even if new complexity isn't really your thing, I'd still suggest giving her stuff a listen. Um, at some point a few years ago, I gave a friend of mine a list of really like thorny music and uh, composers to check out when he was trying to get into that aesthetic world, you know. And I put Lisa Lim um, on the list and pretty high toward the top of the list um, and made sure to point her out. Um, I just think there's something about her music that's so like organic. It's like a living organism. You know, you can really hear her music breathe. Um, when I listen to Oakridge string, even just the beginning of it, you know, I can hear these lines following each other, lots of swelling and contraction in terms of dynamics, but also gestural direction and activity. Um, and it's very textural, not in a sense of, you know, homophonic, polyphonic texture in in musical jargon, but in that when I hear her music, I can almost hear that, you know, the scratching over pressure bowing with this raspy oboe tone. And to a degree, I can connect what I'm hearing to some kind of tangible material or tactile sensation. I don't really know that I can think of any composers who achieve that as effectively and consistently as Lisa Lim. I, I mean, I'd never, I'd never heard of her stuff before, so um, I was really glad to like dial in a little bit. Um, although I definitely had to, um, I had to get up and, and like put some fucking D'Angelo on to clear my palate after this thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you definitely need a bit of a palate cleanser after Lisa Lim. Admittedly, uh, it's good, but you you need to recoil a little bit after a piece like this. I will say that I have felt, uh, I have listened to pieces that felt like way more work to listen to than this one was. So, um, it was, it was good. Way to, way to go, Aliza Lim. It was a great piece. Not that she needs my congratulations because she's a total baller. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure she'd still really appreciate that, but yeah, she's the shit. Yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for bringing this to my attention. I'd never heard of, of her before. And, uh, I want to dig more in cause she's, like I said, a total baller, man. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm happy to spread the word. Um, And just on one last note, um, I don't really mean to beat a dead horse on here, but I really do recommend that everyone check out Lisa Lim's music, especially if you're someone who's hesitant to check out New Complexity in the past. Um, It's easy to boil that music down uh, to complex decoupled notation, complex rhythms and quarter tones to those elements. But it's really, it's so much more than that. And Lisa Lim specifically, I think is doing something really impressive and unique with her music. Um, and hopefully you were able to take that away from, you know, what we talked about and played here. Uh, it just reminds me of this, uh, Brian Fernie, quote, uh, and I'm paraphrasing just because I know how my music is created doesn't mean I hear it in a privileged way. And I might've said something similar, uh, to that early on in the episode, Uh, But I think that applies even more with Lisa Lim in my experience. I know so much of her output, but I've only ever laid my eyes on a couple of her scores. And I'm totally fine with that. You know, the music is just so captivating on its own merits. Um, I think even if you're not typically into this kind of stuff, I do think you'll probably find something there. Well, hey, man, thanks for sharing. Uh, What do you what do you think about uh, for next time? 
Um, well, I'm actually not entirely sure. Uh, I could keep the uh, the new complexity train running and bring in some some Jason Eckhart. I was thinking maybe something electroacoustic or possibly uh, Sandra by Kaya Sariaho. You know, I, fuck it. I'm bringing in Sandra by Sariaho. You know, I'm working on a flute, cello, piano piece that nice. that seems appropriate. So there it is, Sariaho. Next song. <laughs> next song I, i'm not quite sure what i'll bring yet i uh either mm, a piece by this norwegian composer named knut nistet uh or you know i was just maybe looking to highlight one of my favorite pieces by a friend of the pod uh michael torkey shout out to michael torkey um who recently followed us on on instagram which you can find us on uh, have you heard this with josh and john we're on instagram at have you heard this with josh and john and the word you is spelled with a you but you can also uh get to our instagram via our uh, website which is have you heard this podcast.com we're also on facebook in case you want to engage there yeah man uh what uh where can we find you on the web john well you can find me at my website uh johnfielder.com it's no h in john um also on facebook uh john fielder on instagram at john fielder composer on twitter at john fielder music and then you can find me on uh spotify and apple music and really anywhere you're streaming music and i am uh, on instagram at at the joshua shank uh, or you can find me uh joshuashank.com shank spelled just like the prison knife s-h-a-n-k uh well hey john i guess we'll see you uh, on the next episode eh yeah sounds good all right we'll talk to you later until next time <laughs>